the Gerontological Society of America, Advancing Innovation in Aging. GSA on Aging. I'm Howard Dagenholz, social media editor of The Gerontologist, a publication of the Gerontological Society of America. I spoke with Emily Franzosa. She works at the Bronx VA and has just earned her doctorate from the Department of Community Health and Social Sciences at the City University of New York. Emily's recent paper, Who's Caring for Us? Understanding and Addressing the Effects of Emotional Labor on Home Health Aids Well-Being, appeared in The Gerontologist. We talked about her research and what she's working on now at the VA. Afterwards, I talked to my mother. Tell me a little bit about yourself. You got your degree at CUNY at City University of New York. Before that, um, I worked for a long time for the benefit fund that provides health and pension benefits for unionized healthcare workers in New York, 1199. Um, and so that's really how I came to uh, look at the work that home care workers do because we represent uh, you know, many uh, thousands of home care workers working throughout the city. So, Emily, tell me about your recent paper in The Gerontologist. Sure. So um, in this paper, uh, we were looking at the emotional labor that aids, uh, that home health aides bring uh, to the job when they're working with their clients. And I got interested in this because um, we know uh, that technically home health aides, we think of them as providing physical care. So um, they help you know, older people bathe and eat, they do some household tasks, and that's really what's on their, their care plans. That's formally what the job description is. Uh, but if you talk to home care workers or the people that they care for, you know that there's actually much more that they do. Um, they provide a lot of companionship. They provide a lot of emotional support. Um, but they don't really get training or preparation in doing that. They're sort of doing it on the fly. So... I really wanted to look at um, what this emotional care that workers are providing brings to home care uh, and how we can better support it so that clients are getting that real full range of you know, physical and emotional care that they need um, and that's really important to quality care. That's very interesting. So was there a training component to, this, um, to, the, to the study? Uh, for this study, there was not a training component. We did focus groups with workers where we um, uh, we pretty much asked them uh, questions about uh, how they perceive quality care, what quality home care means to them, uh, what they need to provide it, and uh, the barriers that they experience in providing it. And a lot of the things that came up, the really strong themes were around um, around this emotion work uh, that's really in a lot of ways what you might call an invisible job requirement. It's something that you have to do, but you don't really get training or support or compensation to do it. Um, And the idea was that with that, we might um, either develop trainings or or develop other supports that agencies could put in place um, to help workers do that work better. The findings are similar to work I've seen in the nursing home setting. Have you thought about um, the parallels between home care workers and uh, aides in a nursing home setting? 
Sure, absolutely. So um, in institutional settings like nursing homes, there is much more work on uh, these relationships between residents and the people that care for them. Home care is a really unique space because uh, it's not institutionalized. So uh, it's somebody who's providing pretty intimate services, um, but really alone. Um, it's, it, there's very little supervision. It's generally just aides and clients together alone in the client's house. Sometimes there's family there, sometimes there's not. Um, so it's really up to aides and clients to negotiate that job and those relationships in a way that you don't really see in institutional settings where if you're having a problem, you can go to a supervisor and say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm having a you know, a challenging day with Mrs. Smith, what what can I do? Um, or, uh, you know, access maybe training that's available or other supports that are available. Um, that's just not really the way that, um, that it works within um, the home health industry. It's very optimistic about the nursing home setting. I was... <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah, well, uh, let's say there's the, there is maybe the option yes. of doing that in a way that there's that there's not in healthcare. Well, one of the findings that I'm familiar with is that workers who have positive relationships and connections with the people that they care for are much more satisfied with their work and more likely to stay on that job for a long mm-hmm. time. Do you think that's also operating in the home care space? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of workers told us, um, you know, in this project and across other projects, it's a pretty consistent finding that the reason that workers stay in these jobs is because they they love their clients and they find the work very emotionally rewarding. So it's emotionally challenging, but it's also very emotionally rewarding. Uh, and we know, what we know from other research is that emotionally demanding jobs aren't necessarily bad. They can be very rewarding. Um, you know, they can help you problem solve. They can help you feel like you're you're getting challenging work done, um, and you can really feel like there's value in them. Uh, but in order to get that benefit, the work environment and the structure of your work really needs to support it. Um, and we know that uh, turnover in the home care industry is incredibly high. Um, people are leaving those jobs all the time, but what workers consistently say is that even though the wages are very low, the benefits aren't great, um, they feel they often feel bad leaving their clients. In the work that you did for this study or in your other work, did you include workers who are also family members of clients? We did not. So the workers in our study are unionized uh, home health aides in New York City who um, are were caring for non-family clients um, and all Medicaid clients. Um, so it was a it's a pretty low income group um, of both clients and workers. We didn't include family caregivers in the study in particular because, of course, with existing relationships, there uh, there are a lot of complicating factors there, um, which is also something that's really important to look at and that I'm, I'm looking at in related work now. Um, but the, the challenges of family caregiving are um, different and a little more I don't want to say more complex, but complex in different ways. I'm thinking about um, family caregivers or relatives of the care receiver who is also a paid worker, either through an agency or through a 
cash and counseling uh, or consumer-directed model. And I agree that layers on a whole another set of issues and concerns. But I'm wondering if the underlying uh, psychological dynamic of relationships is at play and similar in uh, those types of uh, um, uh, worker to uh, client uh, diets. Right. I think that is a really interesting question and well worth exploring. My um, guess would be that there are similar um, issues, particularly around things like negotiating boundaries, uh, negotiating care. The One of the big differences in the consumer-directed model is that uh, you're employed directly by um, your client. So in that case, if it's a, you know, if it's a family caregiver who's employed by their client, there, there really is nobody to go to. You know, an agency-based aide can um, call their supervisor, although aides in our studies said that they uh, often had a lot of trouble contacting uh, or connecting with their supervisors. Um, but at least there, there is some outside, um, outside authority or, or supervision, even if it's limited. Um, in the consumer-directed model, you don't really even have that. So, um, so I think it would be interesting to look at those questions of uh, how that emotional complexity works into, uh, you know, you really just working for this one person. Right. I can imagine that they would be uh, committed to the care recipient, but also in very different ways. They're also kind of bound to that uh, worker uh, client relationship and, and they're doing it in no small part because it's their job. It's either, could be their primary income or supplementary income. So there's there's multiple levels of uh, of dependency and relationships and um, supervisor relationships uh, layered on. So right, absolutely. So it it um the positive aspects of that caregiving and the stress related to that caregiving and the I think what you're what you keep coming back to is very interesting. It's the lack of another um, supervisor or mentor, expert, manager mm-hmm. uh, who can either provide support or uh, emotional support or technical advice is lacking in that consumer-directed model. Right, right. Um, and one of the things that we also found in our study is um, that it's not necessarily just supervisor support. Uh, aides were really hungry for connection with each other um, because, again, not only are they not really seeing supervisors in the field, but they're not seeing other aides. So you don't really have a chance to sit down and say, oh, I had this problem with my client today and I right. didn't know how to manage it and have, you know, either just vent about it or have somebody give you advice. Um, and, and that was something that they they really wanted very strongly, whether that was in the form of something like a support group or a you know social network or um, you know even just coming together in classes or trainings and or even in the focus groups. A lot of aides told us that the focus groups had been really beneficial to you know just get together with other aides and talk about what was happening. Yeah, that's very interesting. That. That's a very interesting finding, right? You're trying to be a neutral observer and collect information and and 
and it turns out that you're having a therapeutic effect or or actually the what's supposed to be neutral data collection is actually becoming an intervention in, inadvertently right yeah. right um, and you know as i I would push back and say that there's not ever really neutral data collection, um, but part of the work that we were doing here is that we really wanted to um, involve aides in this process and make sure that their voices are heard because these are often folks who, when we talk about the healthcare team or the support team, aides aren't really a part of that team and we're not including their expertise. Um, so we uh, we were actually really happy to see that just the focus groups themselves were an opportunity for AIDS that they found beneficial because, you know, ultimately that's, that's what we want to do. We want to help these folks, um, you know, ha- improve the quality of their working lives. How generalizable do you think these findings are given the setting where you conducted the research, the uh, union, um, in New York City, the pay structure, programmatic structure in New York is uh, relatively uh, unique. So I'm, I'm wondering if you think that your findings will generalize to other settings. So that is a great question and definitely one that we thought about. Um, I actually think uh, in looking across the literature, um, you know, uh, gerontological and sociological and the um, health services literature, our findings are remarkably similar to what we hear from AIDS about their experience in the home, particularly things about um, the efforts that they take to build relationships with their clients, the stresses that they have on the job, um, both emotional and economic. Um, So I think in that sense, it is very generalizable. I think what's interesting about this population is, as you pointed out, the the unionized New York City home care workforce is one of the most privileged in the country. They earn um, slightly higher wages. They're eligible for health benefits and for, um, you know, modest pensions. Uh, They have access to training benefits if they qualify. But the fact that we're still hearing these same issues, I think really says that we need to raise the floor for all of these workers. So, Emily, tell me, what are you uh, working on now? Congratulations on starting your new position at the Bronx VA. What are you going oh, to be... Oh, thank you very much. What are you going to be working on uh, as you uh, get settled in? My hope is that I'll be able to use these findings to support home care services for our veterans. And uh, we're still thinking about what exactly that's going to look like. Um, But uh, we definitely want, or I definitely want to look at how to develop um, this uh, research that really connects and quantifies uh, the emotional care that AIDS provide, the stuff that now we call um, off-plan care or extra care, um, but that we know is really central to uh, client care. Uh, And, uh, you know, we know that in this environment where we're really looking at things like quality and value, um, if you can't measure something, it doesn't really exist. So, um, 
So we want to really uh, understand how the work that AIDS are putting in, especially the emotional work, relates to patient outcomes. Um, and are there other patient outcomes we should be looking at besides things like hospitalization? You know, can we um, look at whole health issues um, like um, you know, connection to community and mental health and, uh, you know, satisfaction with your life or, or those things that, that are important that we can tie to aid care. Will you also be focusing on strengthening the workforce? Yes. I mean, that's uh, that's a really critical issue. Um, as I, I think I mentioned before, uh, turnover in this workforce is incredibly high, up to 80%. Um, and so we're losing, uh, you know, literally, you know, thousands of, of workers. Uh, I mean, many more than thousands. Um, and over the next, uh, you know, 10 years or so, we're going to need to fill uh, literally millions of these jobs. So we've got to figure out ways to keep people in these jobs and to attract more workers. And that means uh, they need to pay better. Uh, they need to provide supportive benefits. Um, they need to have supportive supervision. Um, and, uh, you know, they just need to be livable. I've long thought that a challenge for people in these jobs is all of the things that you said, the attention to the emotional aspects of the work and ways to continue to support and reward people who do this work because of the relationships that they're building with their clients and mm-hmm. having ways to think about doing that work and continuing to do that work that does not include being promoted out of your skill set to supervision or some other administrative job where, yes, you can be paid a little bit more, but now you're no longer doing the work that you found to be so uh, rich and uh, have that interpersonal connection. Right. I, you're, you're exactly right. Um, I think, uh, you know, these jobs don't have to be bad jobs. And um, some people take these jobs because it's what's available. And some people take them because they really feel like it's a calling. And our focus in workforce development for so long has been about training and upgrading. You start as a home health aide, but, you know, you could be a nurse. You could be a supervisor. You could be a manager. But as you point out, some people don't want to do that. Some people really do want to do this direct patient care. Um, So that work really needs to be rewarded and supported. Um, And our aides had, uh, in our focus groups, had a lot of ideas about how that could work. Um, you know, they suggested trainings that could be focused on workers and how to how to manage the the emotional side of care. They talked about things like um, peer support groups. They talked about um, things like uh, having supervisors help to negotiate boundaries with clients and patients. Um, you know, there there are a lot of ways that that these jobs can become uh, rewarding jobs that you can stay in for your career. It occurs to me that. We often think about training as like an antibiotic. You you, you mm-hmm. give the training and then the worker is now equipped to do the job. But maybe we need a chronic disease model of training. That is, training is something that 
we continually do to always maintain the health and well-being of the workforce. Mm-hmm. I think that's a I think that's a really interesting idea, and uh, I, especially because we can't really see training as separate. And what we know from uh, training not just in home care, but throughout the, the healthcare industry, throughout every industry, um, is that it's not useful to give people tools and then put them in a situation where they can't use them. So, um, you know, if you get uh, training on, uh, you know, say, managing patient boundaries um, when they ask you to do something that, that you're not supposed to be doing or that you, you can't or, or don't want to do that's off the care plan, um, you know, what about when you don't, when your supervisor doesn't back you up? What about when, um, you know, when you have to leave the job anyway because it doesn't pay? Uh, you know, those, the training is only as effective as the environment in which that that training can be implemented. Yes, and another finding that that I have uh, that we found in some of our work was that if you ask people about their ability to manage something like patient boundaries and they've never really done it effectively, they might actually have outsized uh, perceptions of their own abilities. Um, and then if you give them a training and they never implement that training, they might still have outsized uh, perceptions of their um, skills. But if you uh, provide the training and they actually try to do it, they actually might have much lower estimate of their own uh, capacity because they've actually tried and seen how difficult it is. That's a really interesting finding, um, and I think very applicable to this work where we found that uh, aides are doing work very deliberately and with a lot of expertise, but it is this homegrown expertise uh, for the most part, um, the their own emotional intelligence and emotional skills that are driving this work. Um, and some felt uh, more confident in their ability to do that. Some felt less confident in their ability to do that. Um, but, but one of the things that we heard, um, and this might not quite answer this question, but, but I think it's interesting in this context, is um, that workers had a lot of ideas about how to put things in place. You know, when we asked them what they needed to do, they would say, you know, you set boundaries, like you have to remember your client is your client, it's not a family member, uh, you don't get too close to them. But then when we asked how they did that, they often couldn't answer that question. Um, so in some ways, they, they know what what they need to do or what they're being told they need to do. Uh, but in practice, it's it's much more challenging. Yeah, that's it's very interesting. I It's almost like um, an acting uh, class where the need, the requirement is a performative set of uh, emotional relationships, then that it's also self-protecting uh, in some way. Right, exactly. And uh, and sort of the crux of this paper is that we, or the study is that, you know, we were looking specifically at the emotional labor that AIDS provides. So there are a couple of different levels of that. Um, and emotional labor is a, um, a term that uh, Arlie Hochschild um, coined uh, to describe kind of these invisible job requirements. It's essentially the, um, basically like the customer service you do to make someone feel good. So um, 
you know, what you're describing is, is the surface acting, which is, you know, when, you know, you go to the coffee shop and the cashier smiles at you and asks how you're doing. Um, but then there's also this deeper emotion work that we find that AIDS are doing where you really, you try to change your actual feelings. You know, there's a genuine relationship there. But if your client is yelling at you or having a bad day and you still have to feel that bond, uh, that causes a lot of stress. Um, and that's what we found was, was really challenging for workers when um, the feelings that, that they felt they were supposed to be having or trying to genuinely have were discordant with what was actually going on in the relationship. Yeah, that's, I think that's the heart of it, balancing those two things and maintaining a sense of well-being while you are uh, caught between those different uh, emotional uh, uh, demands. Right, exactly. Emily, I want to wrap up. I want to thank you for your time. This has been very, very interesting. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy to have this conversation, and thank you for inviting me. Hello. Hi, Mom. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Hey, What's doing? nothing much. I'm in my podcast recording studio. Oh, 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 good. <laughs> You're lucky I, I, I answered because usually <laughs> there's no name. I don't... Uh... I wanted to talk to you about a study that I read about, which has to do with uh, caregivers for um, for people when it's like a home health worker in your own home. Uh-huh. So the, mm-hmm. the questions, and I'm wondering if you've thought about this at all, the questions have to do with the emotional well-being of the workers and how they deal with the um, the 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 relationships that they have with the people that they care for. I'm wondering if you've thought about that at all. Not really. Not really. Um... Some people see it just as a job. Some people see it as a relationship with the person they're they're working with. So, and I've really never given that much thought. Well, like let's let's use an example that we're both familiar with. So the the woman who helped Aunt Margie take care of Uncle Alan. They, she's incredible. Yes. So they were there, you know, one sister was there during the week and one was there over the, right. the weekend. I guess when they were back, still back in uh, Fort Lee, you had uh, some interaction with the, the uh, mm-hmm. workers she had. In, oh yeah. Yeah. Locally. So, so he, you know, as, as you recall, I mean, he could be uh, very pleasant, but he could also be uh, very difficult and, it was the woman's, uh, the the worker's responsibility and her job to take care of him and also interact with Aunt Margie. And um, all of those women stayed on the job for a very long time. How do you think these women manage that emotional um support that they're able to give Uncle Alan and also Aunt Margie? Well, at the beginning, um, Uncle Alan was still able to have some interaction with them. 
he really couldn't he 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 wasn't functioning at the level he had been at the you know when all of this was all of the the dementia was starting and he was conversational and he you know he was engaged in um and what was going on around him. And as that started to fall off, they became more like mommies. You know, they would they would still deal with him on, on an adult level, but they couldn't talk to him the same way because he wasn't, uh, he wasn't um, um, processing things the same, the same way he had been. But they had already, you know, Diana's, you know, primarily was the one who was with him uh, during the day. If you have a, if you have an agency and they send out a, a worker to somebody's home, they're clearly responsible for: is this worker trained? Do they know what they're doing in the home? Right, the whole background do they do check, all that? Mm-hmm. and yeah. just have they had the training to do the work? But there's another level to it, which is: are they emotionally equipped to do the work? And do they have the ability to navigate these complicated relationships and emotions? That's a, that's an excellent question and and a very very hard one to answer and certainly can lead to a lot of heartache for the worker and for the person who needs the the care. And I think it's on a highly individual base because you can you can hire somebody for you know, for an agency to send, you know, to send out, you can have somebody come into your home from just from recommendations. And people are people; they have, they can, they can have a very good relationship with someone, um, even while they're doing the most intimate chores with them. Where they can just hate what they're doing, but they're doing it because of the money. One of the reasons why people stay in those jobs is not just the money. It's the relationship that they have with the people they're Right, right. For. I was just going to get to that. But because the work is just is very intimate and demands mm-hmm. that level of emotional and personal connection. But, the, but not everybody is equally equipped to do that. Right. So if an agency sends somebody out to your home to take care of daddy, for example, and their heart's not in it, then they're not going to do a good job. And it's not just about, well, they like, might. They, You know, they'll do... They, look, we had somebody when, mom was, when my mother was dying. And it was very difficult for me to be there on a regular basis to check on what she was doing. But she reported to me every day. And Grandma was able to talk to me. She wasn't happy about the situation, you know, that she had to have somebody in the house to take care of her and to deal with um, deal with everything because Grandma just, you know, was just too ill to even get out of bed sometimes. And... I was having a very hard time with it. Whenever I could get there, I would, you know, certainly on the weekends. But during the week, I was working, I was 
taking care of you guys. Grandpa was traveling. Daddy was traveling. Um, and the best I could do was hold on through the day until I was able to get to a phone and talk to her or talk to the Remy. Was her, that was the woman's name who took care of her. Um, so, and then reassure myself that she was being taken care of properly, you know, so, kindly. That's, that was the best I could hope for. So do you think that that woman had a relationship with yes. your mother? Yes. We, had, we were, had been able to hire her. She was a, a registered nurse at Columbia Presbyterian. And when we knew that that she was going to die, we took we took her we took her home because the hospital wasn't going to keep her. And we hired Remy, who had been her nurse in the hospital, to come and work for, for us privately. So we knew that they had a relationship. And I knew that she was being taken care of, certainly by a professional and somebody who had a very, had an aura of kindness. And and that was really what I needed. I was afraid to bring anybody in that I didn't know or hadn't been recommended. But it's still, um, oh boy, it's, it's, it's a very hard choice to make. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. Hey, Mom, I need to uh, get going. Thank you so much. Have a good day. All right. You too, sweetheart. Thank you. Love you. Okay, love you too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. To learn more about The Gerontologist and to read its latest articles, visit the website at www.geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, to encourage exchanges among researchers and practitioners from the various disciplines related to gerontology, and to foster the use of gerontological research in forming public policy.